It was probably on um, Thursday or Friday of last week, um, depending on which hemisphere of the world you were in. Uh, Thursday or Friday, yeah. And in Hiroshima in Japan, there was a, a commemoration for the, on the very hour, on the very moment on which um, the first uh, uh, nuclear attack took place. Uh, took place at the end of the Second World War and it brought to the end um, years of fighting of bloodshed and many thousands died in the initial detonation uh, countless thousands died then and, and thousands and thousands more died afterwards from the, from the awful after effects of the radiation and the justification for the use of this uh, devastating weapon still uh, continue. The, 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 the debate over the justification still carries on. Well, by the end of, of 1944, um, the military power of the United States was absolutely enormous. Nowhere was this truer than in the Pacific. In the Pacific theatre of the, of the Second World War, um, this was very much the case, and its huge resources of manpower and material meant that um, even, before the, even before the devastating attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki took place, that Japan itself was very much a shattered country. Everywhere in the Pacific, its forces <coughs> were, being, were being driven back. And the United States Navy and the, the United States Marines and the Army were, 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 were remorselessly engaged in this um, bloody and, and terrible process of island hopping, that was what it was called, where they would take back uh, clusters of island territory and they would leapfrog from one territory to another, uh, leapfrogging further enemy forces, cutting off their supply lines. Well, it was against this um, background of bitterly contested retreat that a young Japanese lieutenant Hiru Onada was detailed by his higher command to take his group of highly trained saboteurs and uh, intelligence gathering uh, operatives to the Philippine jungle island of Lubang. His orders were to stay there, uh, pursuing a clandestine war for as long as it took before he was required, he and his men were required as a resource for the Imperial Japanese Army. Above all, he was ordered never to surrender. And under no circumstances was he to die by his own hand. He was to wait the call of the Japanese forces. Well, the events of 1945 took place. And an already staggering Japan was brought to its knees in complete and abject and unconditional surrender. Subsequent years, however, saw massive American investment in Japan. America invested hugely in the infrastructure and the industries of Japan, its industries, its factories, its, everything about its, its economy rose like a phoenix from this dust and the ashes and the, and the rubble of the war and its infrastructure and, uh, and everything about uh, Japan physically burgeoned. And in 1950, uh, I, I found a statistic on the internet <coughs> which told me <coughs> that the, excuse me, the, the United States government, under some special measure that, which was called 
um, it was called special procurement, special procurement. Under special procurement, the, the United States government had pumped into the Japanese economy the equivalent of 27% of Japan's total export trade. So an enormous amount of investment. Well, all of this while, the news of events had not reached Hiro Anada in his island hideout on Lubang. Attempts to contact him had proved fruitless because he was so good at evading capture. Any attempt to get in contact with him resulted in people talking to fresh air. He was gone. In addition, his belief that the enemy was trying to dupe him resulted in his having an even strengthened determination to remain as he saw it at large. And the idea that his former enemies, or his enemies as he saw them, were now busily engaged in reconstruction in his own country after his, his country, Japan's disastrous adventure with fascist militarism would have been completely beyond him. He carried on living in the jungle, surviving on a diet of stolen eggs, bananas and coconuts. And he remained there for 29 years. And he didn't come out of the darkness of the jungle until March 1972. Participating, sharing in Japan's post-war growth and fruitfulness could not happen until Hirubanada had gained a correct understanding. And concerning the gospel, Paul says it's the same way round. Last week we looked at the early part of Colossians 1. Colossians 1 verse 6, Paul writes, Over the world, all over the world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing just as it has been doing amongst you since the day you heard it and understood God's grace in all its truth. Central to a correct understanding of the gospel, Paul continues, is the person and the work of Jesus. And it's the theme of the passage this week. I'm going to concentrate on, on verses 15 to 20, but it was good to hear Elizabeth talking, uh, to continuing to get the context. Now, our actual text this morning is 15 through to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. <clears throat> he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And the first point that I want to make is, and to identify with us this morning, 
uh, that is that Paul makes, the one that Paul makes unmistakably to his Colossian hearers, and it comes at the end of verse 20. For God was pleased through Jesus to make, to reconcile to himself all things, and by making peace with his, through his blood shed on the cross. And the point is this, and that is the war's over. The war is over. Lieutenant Hiro Onada needed to know that the Americans weren't after him anymore. And Colossian believers, the recipients of this letter, needed to fix onto the finality of the peace that they now enjoyed with God, bought not by the death of countless individuals in a nuclear attack, but by the death of one man, Jesus, the Prince of Peace. And they were being told at this time that, uh, you know, extra weird disciplines were necessary for them to properly be Christians. They had to starve their bodies and, you know, that would really add something to them as Christians. Nothing, none of these weird things. I mean, starving, you know, it might help me, but it, it wouldn't help... It wasn't going to help them, okay? And it would add nothing to the peace of these Colossian Christians. And Magdalen Road believers, in fact, believers from Iran, believers from Romania, believers from wherever we come from, Sutton Courtney even. We need to know that the, the source of true tranquility comes only from the salvation, the peace which was purchased by Jesus. Which means that I don't have to beat myself up anymore about the stupid and the harmful decisions I took in my past. And neither do you. You need to give in to God because he is a good God. Now I'm conscious of the fact, uh, because there's a variety of, of ages and of experiences of life here, that some of you here this morning might be um, putting off this decision. You might be, you know, equivocating in two minds, well, it's something which can wait until the future. I don't know why you're still putting it off. Give in to God, folks. He's a good God. And peace with God is not something that we've got to make because Jesus has made it for us. Well, this bit of our New Testament uh, in Colossians is written probably from prison uh, when Paul was banged up for uh, annoying the authorities by continually preaching Jesus. Um, and he writes... <coughs> With the purpose in mind, the primary function uh, for these first few chapters at any rate is to combat the false teaching which was being put about in the church at uh, Colossae um, by people who, um, well, they were, they were advocating some doctrines which actually weren't the gospel. They were, history describes them as early Gnostics, and if, like me, you go to Google and put Gnosticism in, you'll find out that one of the things that they, they taught was that in addition to the revelation of God in Jesus, that there were other spirits and other angels and other lords of other realms to, to, to whom obeisance had to be offered. 
It was a bit like um, a kind of a ladder, um, and there's sort of rungs on the ladder, um, a bit, little bit like um, the um, discredited British aristocracy. Um, and these ladders sort of kind of were stacked one above the other, and uh, you know you had to you had to sort of the, the higher you were, then you the, it was just a lot of nonsense. Which, to be quite honest. It had a certain amount of currency and people were believing it and these and other beliefs were dragging people away from believing in Jesus. And what Paul is up to in these early chapters is implicitly to counter these false doctrines and explain why Jesus is the one and only. This towering and unique and unsurpassable divine Son of God. So... You know, if you were a Colossian Christian, you might have read this letter and you thought, well, these are pretty trenchant opinions that, that Paul is coming to us. I wonder how he came by them. And, you know, you wouldn't have been that unique if you'd been, con- uh, if you'd been uh, questioning uh, Paul's uh, insights as to the person of Jesus. So I don't think it's uh, particularly unhelpful and probably a good idea if we just think about how Paul came by these insights because they are crucial to everything. So we are going to ask these questions. I want you to ask uh, yourself if you can remember Paul's first words on the road to Damascus after he's been confronted by the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ. It's in Acts chapter 9 and there he is. He's lying on the tarmac and he's been dazzled and he's knocked to the ground and he hears these words, Saul, Saul, that was Paul's original name, why are you persecuting me? So what's the next thing he says? Anybody remember? What are the words he says? Exactly, thank you. Who are you, Lord? And the answer comes back to him, well, I'm Jesus, who you're persecuting. And if you read on in the chapter, you'll find out that Paul then travels to Jerusalem and he meets the apostles. He meets the uh, initial, original disciples of Jesus. And and they brief him, they teach him, they instruct him. And at that point, he starts a period of training which goes on for years. But he, at that point, starts to preach that Jesus is the Messiah. So, from lying on the tarmac on the road that goes between Jerusalem to Damascus and writing the Colossians, something clear and something complete has formed in the mind of Paul, as he's now called, about the person of Jesus and there's something else uh, in addition to the testimony of these uh, original disciples he gets, he gets something else really quite special uh, something that not very many people I would imagine that he's unique in this he talks about a special revelation that was given to him and it's a weird passage it comes in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 Sometimes a bit difficult to understand quite what's going on, but I'm going to read it just so you get an idea of what was going on. I'll go on to visions, 2 Corinthians 12, he says. I'll go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether it was in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, but God knows, was caught up to paradise He heard inexpressible things, things which a man is not permitted to tell. And you can actually tell, if you read the context, he's talking about himself. 
So it's clear that there was a clarity and a certainty to the identity, the person and the status of Jesus which is absolutely core to who Paul was. It was his mindset. And what does he tell us? And it's, it's our second point this morning. If the war is over, who was it who won the war? The victor, Paul says, is the visible form of the invisible God in verse 15 and the inheriting heir over the created universe. And not only that, says Paul, he goes on to say that this victorious Jesus is the engineer who brought into being everything, including the very things that the early Gnostics were making such a fuss about and telling everybody else that they got to worship. Jesus had made it all. Verse 16, For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers, these rungs that I was talking about on this weird ladder, rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. If it exists at all, Paul is saying, then Jesus made it. And you can't trump that. We found out when we were reading in, in Acts um, that Paul had met up with the immediate followers of Jesus. So it isn't really surprising, is it? To kind of notice the similarity. We actually had it up on the screen earlier. The opening verses of John's Gospel. Paul had been talking with the initial followers of Jesus and here he is saying pretty much the same thing that Paul says, that John says in the opening verses of John's Gospel. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made and without him nothing was made that has been made. Paul and John agree. Jesus is God and he made everything. So the kind of steel links of Paul's argument are being welded together. Jesus is victor. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. And Jesus is the sustainer. Verse 17. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, subatomic particles being investigated at the giant hadron collider that some people have buried under the Alps at CERN near Geneva in Switzerland. Weird thing, weird place, very expensive. Vast distant nebulae and exploding stars that are only visible through the space telescope, the Hubble Space Telescope, which is orbiting our planet, and the physiology, which allows me to stand here to recover from a cold and to speak to you, okay? In him, all things hold together. So, very God, victor, creator, sustainer, and to that list we can add pioneer. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, because Jesus rose from the dead, Paul implies, so will his followers. He's a representative of every one of his people who make up the church. 
And what I'd like to do now is to go on to point number three in my little talk, and that is the resources which flow from that. They applies both to the Colossian believers and to us too, to Magdalen Road believers here in Oxford. The believers at Colossae needed to realise the, the size, the proportions of the bank balance which was available to them. And they didn't need the equivalent of all the uh, offers arriving on the doormat in the junk mail of the early church. And for believers today, it really isn't any more complicated. And if you find something else that Paul has said in Romans chapter 8, you find him again spelling out the wealth of a believer's, at a believer's disposal. In verse 32 of Romans chapter 8, he says, He who did not spare his own son, God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us everything, all things? So, folks, open the envelope, pull the sheet out, read the summary of investments that God has put in your bank balance. Peace with God, a growing relationship with Jesus, empowerment by the Holy Spirit, family, brothers and sisters, a living, a dynamic Bible, Word of God. A glorious future, which transcends this brief time that we're on this world. A glorious future that transcends our life and time. An inflation-proof, double-dip recession-proof, climate change-proof, future-proof inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you and I pinched the last bit from Pistle by Peter but the first bit about the double dip recession I made up thing is most of the scrapes which I get into as a Christian uh, derive from my failure to realise quite what God has done for me and what God has made me um, in the headline of Daniel's talk last week, he says, here you go folks, this is what you need to remember. This is the headline, the strap line of my talk. He says, uh, trust in Jesus. That's it. Well, this week's um, strap line headline can be a bit, just a little bit, tiny bit longer. It goes like this. Trust in Jesus. He's brilliant is all you need. That's it. So I'm going to finish my little chat this morning by, by reading part of somebody else's sermon and I think many of you will recognise it very quickly because it says it all rather well and it has been uh, put to an extremely good drum and bass accompaniment which I will neither attempt nor the accent but I'm going to read it to you because it's really good. No means of measure can define his limitless love. No far-seeing telescope can bring into visibility the coastline of his shoreless supply. 
No barriers can hinder him from pouring out his blessing. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. That's my king. He's God's son. He's the sinner saviour. He's the centrepiece of civilization. He stands alone in himself. He's august. He's unique. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He's supreme. He's preeminent. He's the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the supreme problem in higher criticism. He's the fundamental doctrine in true theology. He's the cardinal necessity of spiritual religion. That's my king.